I'm going to pray for God's blessing on our time. This is obviously a very relevant issue today. Um, so we need God's help thinking clearly, and, um, and I need his help teaching what his word says faithfully. And then, um, so let's, let's seek him first. God, thank you for the blessing of belonging to Christ. Thank you for his redemption, for the justification by which you've called us righteous in Christ, by his righteousness. Thank you for the forgiveness, the cleansing uh, that his death provides for us. And we thank you for the gift of his Holy Spirit who indwells us and renews us and continues to, to purify and perfect us toward Christ's likeness. Uh, we thank you that all of us who are in Christ are on this journey of having been declared righteous and being made more and more righteous and holy in our actions and in our habits of thought and, and in our desires and in our words. Thank you for the gift of getting to do this not only alone but in a, in a body, the body of Christ. Thank you that we get to gather and give expression to our oneness in Christ by being uh, in the same place and encouraging one another in the faith. Thank you for the richness of your word, how you teach us both um, your law and what your moral will says, and then teaches us the gospel, how we can be saved from our failure to keep your law, and also how we can uh, walk in your commandments as those who have been redeemed in Christ. We pray for wisdom as we deal with all of the topics of this series with marriage and family, especially today, homosexuality, knowing um, uh, what a just what a what an intensely personal issue it can be for some, and uh, what a, a controversial issue it can be in our society. We need to think clearly from your word. We want to be faithful lights in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And uh, we want to be faithful for Christ in, in every way. So we pray for help with that and that this would be a church that glorifies you in, in our grace and truth, our, our faithfulness to Christ and what he's revealed. Uh, so help me to that end. Help us all to be alert in our listening and uh, help us all to have humility of heart before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been in this series on marriage and family looking, um, before we kind of, earlier we kind of set a foundation of what does the Bible say about marriage, what does the Bible say about children, and then we started dealing with some of the special issues, the more kind of complications that arise, or things that, um, that uh, like singleness we looked at, and, and parenting, and today we're looking at homosexuality, next week we're looking at divorce, these are both uh, results of sin. These are both results of distortion to God's original design um, that, that need to be discussed in this context of marriage and family. And um, today, yeah, we're dealing with homosexuality. We know that we live in a unique time in our generation with this issue. Um, over the past few decades, it's, it's really breathtaking how society, our broader society, has shifted on this issue. I think, I think we taught on this nine years ago, and I think I said, is shifting and I'm changing the tense. I mean, it is still shifting, but I'm changing the tense of saying has shifted. Um, it's just remarkable kind of mainstream opinion on this issue. If you, if you recall, just look at the political realm, as safe as and uncontroversial as that is. Um, in 2008, Barack Obama ran as a Democratic candidate for U.S. president opposing gay marriage in 2008. In 2012, he ran for re-election pro-gay marriage. So somewhere in those four years, he publicly shifted his stance, and whether or not, and you may wonder if he was disingenuous in 2008, but at least either he was anti-gay marriage or he thought it would be politically expedient to present himself as anti-gay marriage. By 2012, that calculus changed. 
Now, nearly a decade later, of course, we had Obergefell in 2015, uh, making same-sex marriage the law of the land around our whole country. Now, nine years after that, the mainstream of even the supposedly conservative party, the Republicans, is quickly shifting toward absolute acceptance of homosexuality. We're about to have a general presidential election, by all appearances, between two candidates who fully affirm homosexuality and have no objection to same-sex marriage. That's politics, but beyond that, we, we feel the ground shifting under our feet in every aspect of culture. Um, I'd say the affirmation of, of homosexuality has almost finished its complete conquest of mainstream society, thinking of media, thinking of education, entertainment. Um, in many people's eyes, it's just sort of become the self-evident truth that only hatred and bigotry could uh, explain any moral objection against same-sex marriage. Or actually, there is no moral objection that that's just a front for, for just more base things like just bigotry and hatred. Um, if two consenting adults love each other and want to make a lifelong commitment, who are we to judge and stop them? Um, now, that's kind of out there in the, the, the waters we swim in in our culture, but what about our lives, our close relationships? This issue, I'm sure, affects all of us somehow, either a close relationship, maybe a little bit more of a distant relationship, maybe coworkers, family, maybe ourselves. Maybe this is an issue we deal with in ourselves or someone else, you know, uh, maybe in the body of Christ here. How will we navigate these waters? Now, notwithstanding the ways that culture has shifted, the, Bible teach, the Bible's teaching, I'm going to tell you right now, on homosexuality is very clear. It has not changed. Uh, it's very simple. <laughs> now, this, the complexity comes in the personal side of it. So what we're going to do is first look at what does the Bible say about this issue, deal a little bit with objections that you might hear, people trying to argue about the different biblical um, material we see on homosexuality. We, we do want to deal with a little bit of the arguments and objections you might hear. And then we're going to deal with sort of the personal side. What about dealing with it ourselves, dealing with other loved ones, others in the church that this might, this might uh, arise. So um, what we're going to see, just to be really up front with you is we're going to see that, that homosexual practice is a rebellious distortion of our creator's design for sex and marriage. Uh, it's, it's absolutely clear that it's, it's a distortion of that. So we're going to see that. Um, like I said, we'll look at the biblical teaching first, and then we'll look at kind of the personal um, life side of it, dealing with this issue in ourselves and others. Um, and we're going to look at how the hope of the gospel, we don't want to just first we don't want the whole thing we say is this is bad. We want to say, but there's a big but here that's beautiful. That's a gospel but uh, that we're going to explore uh, and glory in by the time we're done. So um, with, before we get into what the Bible teaches on this, do we have any questions or, or thoughts about that? What I've covered or what we're going to cover? Okay. Um, as we look at what the Bible says about this issue, we can kind of see it in two different ways. The first way is very general and high level. It's just to sort of ask, how does this fit with what Scripture positively teaches about marriage and sex and family? And then secondly, we can look at the more specific individual texts that discuss this issue. Um, we might think to run to the, first, the second of those and say, where does the Bible talk about homosexuality? A lot of times, if, a lot of these ethical issues, we'll kind of, we'll kind of ask is homosexual practice allowed in the Bible? Like, that's kind of the question we're bringing to the to, to Scripture. Is it allowed? Or even, even we might, we might uh, be tempted to, to bring a question like this. You're okay with this, right, God? Um, that might be the way we approach this issue as we think biblically. That's the way some people approach this issue as they think biblically. You're okay with this, right? Or is this okay biblically? 
And you'll find some texts that deal with it. We'll get to those. But I think a much more submissive, biblically submissive way of asking the question is, what is God's will for marriage and sex? What does God tell us that he wants this to look like? And we're going to see more relevant data when we start there. What does God want? And what we find is that if you look at the vision, and we've explored this in previous weeks, what the vision that God in the Bible sets out for marriage and sex uh, just very clearly precludes homosexuality. It just doesn't fit with the pattern that Scripture is very clear on. The authors of our book that we're basing the series on say it, it, it opposes God's will, God's design at nearly every point. So let's look at a few of these ways that it doesn't fit with what God positively tells us about marriage and sex. First of all, at its very foundation, God's plan for marriage and sex is heterosexual. It's explicitly a man and a woman. Um, would someone be willing to read Genesis 2.24? We read this, we've read this many times throughout the series. Lori, this is in the Garden of Eden. As God has just created Eve out of Adam's rib. And this is what the narrator Moses says about this development in humanity. Mm-hmm. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So you have a man and you have a wife. He holds fast to his wife. They become one flesh. This is a one flesh union. And Jesus and Paul both treat this verse as sort of the Bible's foundational statement on what marriage is. You may recall in Matthew 19, when Jesus is being asked about divorce, he goes back to Genesis 2.24, says God has made them one flesh, God has made them, uh, uh, united them. Paul in, in Ephesians 5 cites this verse too, and you can tell it's supposed to function as sort of like this is the cornerstone of what the Bible has to say about marriage. This is one of, we'd, we'd also, we're going to look in a moment at Genesis 1.28, that's important. But what you have is a man and a woman becoming one flesh, and that one flesh union is the context for sexual activity. This is the one context, and we've looked at this, where God sanctions, where God allows and blesses sexual activity. Is the one flesh marriage of a man and a woman. That's a pretty tidy system, right? I guess <laughs> a pretty close, like, okay, a man and a woman becoming one flesh in marriage, that's the place for sex. You have, for instance, uh, I, I think it's very helpful, the phrase in Hebrews 13, 4, this, this phrase summarizes the marriage bed. Let the marriage bed be pure. This idea that marriage and sex belong exclusively together, and it's a man and a woman. Um, and again, Jesus looks at Genesis 2.24 as a very foundational verse for what, what marriage is supposed to be. So right, right away, the way God defines marriage, it's a man and a woman. Secondly, homosexuality violates the complementary nature of the marriage union. And we won't look specifically at these, again, previous weeks when we talked about marriage, we dealt with this more. But remember, what is what is the phrase God uses in, or I think the narrator uses in Genesis 2? It's in verse 20, where he's, he's, he's trying to find somebody for Adam, right? He parades all the animals through, and he didn't find a what? A, help, a helpmate, or a meat helper, a, a fit helper, suitable helper. None of the animals were it, so he, he puts him to sleep, pulls a rib out, makes a woman, and that's the suitable helper. So that's kind of the biblical picture of that's the complementarity of the wife is a suitable helper, Ephesians 5.23, he uses the terminology of a headship. The husband is the head of the wife. So there are these complementary uh, strengths and roles that God has built into manhood and womanhood that are designed to be together. So homosexuality is a blatant rejection of that kind of complementarity. It's just saying, like, we see no wisdom in that design. We reject that design. Um, and, it, and it flies in the face of that. 
The third way that homosexuality does not fit God's pattern is that it doesn't fulfill the duty to procreate. Um, we looked, again, we looked earlier at Genesis 1.28. Would someone be willing to read Genesis 1.28? This is another very foundational, yeah, Paul, marriage text, and really foundational human race text regarding our, our creation, yeah. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Good. So this is just right. He created man in his own image, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. We looked at, well, you have to have a man and a woman to be fruitful. And to not be fruitful is to turn away from a big part of our purpose as human beings, as what God designed us to do. Um, at least to, to, to make some kind of supposedly kind of love or romantic relationship or so-called marriage in a way that, that specifically is, is unable to be fruitful and multiply is to reject God's design for us as human beings. Uh, so you can see these points build progressively, right? It's, it's, it's not part of God's design for marriage or for complementarity or for procreation. It's all sort of this, it all kind of fits together very coherently. And homosexuality um, turns aside from all of it, turns aside at every point. Um, Nature itself points to the futility of, uh, of this disorder of homosexuality, that it can't lead to life. Um, God's desi- it's really amazing to stop and think about God's design for sex, that it's this, I mean, there's a lot of good things about sex. One of them is it generates life. It's this miraculous thing that God has made. This is the means by which human beings multiply image bearers of him in the world. And, um, and Unlike God's design purpose for sex, homosexual activity is not ordered toward life. It does not produce life. Um, it's barren and unfruitful. You could say in biblical terms, it's, it's, it's barren. It's unfruitful. It's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's contrary to our design. So, um, by the way, I want to ask a question as we do, as, as we talk about, say, looking at something like, uh, you know, these arguments about it, it, does not, it doesn't produce children. Right, it, it, you know this. This is something you can reason out from Scripture. What? It, what? Um, has anyone heard an objection as as you've interacted over this issue with others, or heard others interacting over this issue, especially with regard to sort of like in public and maybe public policy types? Of, yeah, Jason. Yeah, it kind of raises the, the question of infertility. Then, so yeah. if you were hypothetically a woman who could not bear children, are you therefore would, would that not be an infertile yeah. union because it could? Right, right. So, infertil- what about infertility? Yeah, and what about, and even, like, what about singleness? Like, are, are singles less of a human being because, you know, you have, they're made in the image of God, go out and procreate. Well, are singles, we looked at this last week that uh, the Bible does, doesn't take anything away from the dignity and humanity of singleness or, um, and we looked at infertility, too, that it's, it's a true loss. I think, biblically, we should understand infertility as a loss and as a, as a uh, something is wrong. But it doesn't invalidate marriage. I, I would say marriage as a whole is ordered toward the production, is ordered toward procreation, even though in individual cases, because of the fall, that may not work out. That still doesn't change what marriage is supposed to be. That's a good question. Um, Matt, did you, was that a hand? Yeah. Uh, two different things. One, one is that I know that people will bring up negative examples of heterosexual mm-hmm. families. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a justification. And then 
That's all right. So yeah, people will may say, well, heterosexual marriages aren't, aren't, don't have the most sterling record of leading to flourishing either. And we, could, we, we should be very quick to affirm that. Yeah, sin has done a real number on a lot of good things. But that doesn't necessarily tell us what good is. And it, just because something good has been distorted doesn't mean it's not good. Um, you have to look at the, you have to kind of look at what's it designed to be. Um, and and I, 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 I kind of want to take a little, a little bit of a detour. It's not a detour. It's kind of a parenthesis or excursus I, I think I put in your handout. It's just this idea of natural law because I think this is kind of helpful to us. And that is that, um, you know, we, could, we can talk in terms of, of nature here with regard to what do we learn from nature. Um, God has built the basics of his moral order into nature in a way that is accessible to everyone, um, which means that even people who don't have access or haven't read God's special revelation in Scripture are accountable f- for whether they keep his law. At least uh, there, there is an accessible, at least in the basic way, there is an accessible understanding of God and our obligation to him morally as, as uh, our creator. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 2, 14 to 15. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, and he means they're the written law of Moses. So the nations, historically, they didn't have the Pentateuch, they didn't have the law. Are they off the hook? He says, but when they... By nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So he says, by nature, they do what the law requires. So sometimes they, I mean, people out there know not to murder, and a lot of people don't do it. They, they know they have this sense of moral code. They didn't read Moses. They didn't read the Ten Commandments, but they know like, I shouldn't murder people. But... He's not saying everyone out there, all the Gentiles, kept the law consistently. He said they have these conflicting, like they know they're guilty, they're conflicting, they're excusing, they're, um, what is it? Conflicting thoughts, accuse or excuse them. So they're, it's like this picture of being torn internally. Like they know what's right, but they don't do it consistently. But it does sometimes keep them from doing wrong. Um, you see, it's really interesting, even looking at the, the, like the patriarchs, the era of the patriarchs. This is before God has given his law to Israel. So the law is not revealed yet, but in Genesis 20, remember when Abraham lies about Sarah being his sister, tells the, the king Abimelech, she's my sister. He takes her to be his wife before anything happens, thankfully, gets it, figures it out, goes back to Abraham and rebukes him. How could you do something like that to me? And he literally says, um, you have done to me things that ought not to be done. You almost set me up to commit adultery with, this, with your wife. And this is a pagan king who doesn't know God and doesn't know, certainly doesn't know the Mosaic law hasn't been given yet. And he says, that would have been wrong. You set me up to almost do things that ought not to be done. So there is this sense of uh, built into creation, built into how God made us, that we have some idea of what right and wrong is. Um, Now, the problem is, even though God has made that clear, our sin has distorted that vision. And it causes us, in, in terms of Romans 1.18, to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the truth is there. It's, it's in creation about who God is and about what we owe him as his creatures. But then sin clouds that vision and causes us to suppress that truth and to kind of argue ourselves into being able to violate that. And so that's why we have special revelation. That's why we need a Bible to cut through that haze and give us God's law with kind of more objective clarity that our sin... Uh, necessitates 
and the way to be saved. That's not built into nature. The, the special message of redemption, the gospel, that there's a way in Christ to be saved by faith. So that's why we have the Bible. We need the, we need the moral law clarified, and we need, um, we need the gospel revealed. So we do, uh, we do need the Bible, for sure. But it also means that natural law is a legitimate category, and it is legitimate to argue from natural law as long as we understand natural law to be illuminated by scripture. The, the big takeaway of this is it's appropriate to ask, like, what does nature teach us about what sex is supposed to be? What does nature say? Like, one of these models leads to the production of new life, and one of them does not. Uh, one of them is barren and lifeless. Like, what does that teach you about what's appropriate and then the ends toward which they lead? Uh, what does that teach you about the design uh, that we were made for? Um, but we, of course... If we close the Bible and only reason to ourselves, we're going to end up confused because of sin. So we need the Bible. Clar- They're hand in hand, right? The Bible clarifies natural law. But I think natural law can help deepen our sense of the truthfulness of what the Bible is saying. And it can just add clarity, add more dimensions of clarity. Does anyone see ways that thinking in terms of natural law might help us in our interaction with the world over these issues? Does anyone ever hear an objection like you try to bring up a Bible verse about these issues and someone says... Well, that's your private religious belief. That's not valid. You can't, you can't bring that into the public square. That's just a private, that's your, you know, you can't use the Bible. That's private religious belief. We don't all agree with the Bible in America, so you can't use that. Yeah, Seth. A while back, I was referring to an audio book. I was listening to Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good, good. Mere Christianity has a good argument for natural law. Also, his abolition of man, I think he deals with it too and, and argues no, well. Not, not as in-depth, but yeah. Okay. There we go. Good. Thanks for the recommendation. Yeah, yeah Jason. Just a quick clarification. When you say natural law, are you referring to sort of more the innate uh, sense of, of right and wrong that everyone is, is lovingly endowed with? observations from nature, because the latter category is actually kind of being used against natural law in the sphere. How, how so? I don't understand. There's, a, there, there's this assertion that you find instances of like uh, homosexual practices amongst animals. And so oh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. look at nature and you see the happening yeah. there, and therefore it's natural. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, th- so there may be arguments about animal kingdom and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I, I think what you find in the animal kingdom is probably not actually very good evidence for what they're trying to argue for. But yeah, um, good point that people maybe argue from like we're like animals. So um, yeah, um, good question. I mean, I, I I believe that God God's it. Well, Paul talks in terms of the conscience in Romans two. I'd say that's the most important. I do think that you can look out. Because, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God. I think there is a moral takeaway from that, too. I wouldn't say it's completely all internal. But we can, it, we, it would be dangerous to just look at what animals do and reason toward, toward ourselves. I mean, all of creation's fallen. That's another reason it, it, can, be, it can be a little tough. But um, one of the, I think one of the things that we should feel empowered to do is to say, nature itself teaches that this is wrong. And everybody intuitively has known this for a long, long time. And um, it's, not, it's not just a pri- – d- you don't need only Bible verses to know that this is wrong. The Bible clarifies because of our sin, we get confused. The Bible clarifies. 
but it's not only wrong for Christians. And the Bible isn't the only way that we could possibly know it's wrong. The, God is not going to, when the, the nations face Jesus in judgment, those who didn't have the Bible are not going to be held to account that they didn't, they didn't read the Bible. They're going to be held to account that they knew who God was in nature and they rejected their knowledge of God. And they, and they knew some sense of what they owed him and they turned away from doing it. So that's, that is a basis for interacting with the world. But of course, we, we have the answer key in the Bible that's very helpful for guiding that kind of reasoning. But all that to say, don't let those kinds of arguments push you away into like, oh, well, just, I'll just keep this privately held belief and I won't talk to anyone about it or whatever. Um, it's, that's, a, that's a false uh, argument to say like, oh, that you have nothing to say to, to others. Um, so that's, that's, uh, that's sort of the general things the Bible says about it. So I just want to point out that even if, even if the Bible didn't mention homosexuality at all, we would already have plenty of biblical evidence to say, well, that's not what God designed. And I, I, believe, I believe nature reinforces that, too. But the Bible is very clear on what it's supposed to be, what marriage and sex are supposed to be. But, in fact, the Bible does talk about homosexuality in a few key places and reinforces this conclusion. So any questions before we go into that about the kind of general, broad-level teaching about marriage? Yeah, Lori. It's, it's more a statement than a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's interesting even in homosexual people that mm-hmm. we know. There's a husband, they label themselves husband and yeah. wife. They want to have kids, so they're going to go out and choose the way yeah. that they're going to do that. So they're kind of mimicking yeah. God's design, but with their own set of Right. Why, yeah, so even asking, like, why, why do we intuitively all seem to think that, that kind of life, life is completed in a way by, by, or this union is sort of perfected by adding children? And you can't do that naturally. This is the kind of union that you can't do that naturally. So is that, does that maybe mean something's wrong with this union? Um, yeah, that's a really good observation. And then, yeah, maybe even mimicking, like, the complementarity of, of roles. What was that? Why do you think they're going so hard after schools and children? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's a good question, or that's a good kind of line of, of thinking. Yeah, Paul. You mentioned Romans one eighteen, and you maybe go to one nineteen. Romans one nineteen, kind of what Lori says: the homosexual couple, because oftentimes you'll have the quote-unquote man on the relationship have their hair cut short. Mm-hmm. So if they didn't believe in, if they didn't believe in marriage between a man and a woman, mm-hmm. why did they depict mm-hmm. like that? The other thing is, I think it's deeper, it's a deeper issue because they're thumbing their nose at God saying, no one's going to tell me, mm-hmm. the whole homosexual movement, mm-hmm. the whole abortion, no one's going to tell me how to run my body, no one's going to tell me who I right. can marry, who I can't. So I think it's a much deeper thing. It's a, it's a part of the rebellious spirit. No one's going to tell me yeah. what to do, who to marry, you know, have a baby, not to have a baby. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it is absolutely. It's, 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 and every sin is in a sense rebellion against God, but there's some way in which I think we're going to see in Romans 1 that this sin kind of particularly, particularly encapsulates the sort of anti-God nature of sin in a, in a particularly clear and heinous way. And so you're right. It is ultimately it comes down to like, I don't owe a creator anything. You know, I don't owe, I don't, I don't, I don't recognize boundaries for what I was made to be and what I was made to do. Like, it's a very, very strong autonomous thing. Um, 
Yeah, so, so let's look at texts of scripture that do deal with this. Just briefly, two big ones in the Old Testament. One is in Genesis 18 and 19 with the issue of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, you probably know this story, but God tells Abraham in, in chapter 18, verses 20 to 23, that the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are very grave, and he's going to destroy the city. Now we go, well, what's so bad about Sodom and Gomorrah? What, what are they doing? Well, when they, in chapter 19, we go into the city and we see what's happening. These two angels visit Lot, Abraham's ne- uh, nephew, is it? Nephew. And um, they go into the house, and then these men from the city all gather. All the men in the city gather around and say, we want you to send these two visitors out so we can know them. And in Genesis, in many places, Genesis, that's a euphemism for sexual activity. So they're, they're you, know, you know what they want to do. And... Um, Lot refers to this in 19.7 as a very wicked act. Now, in verse 8, he offers his two daughters instead, which is an evil thing to do, full stop. But just notice the reasoning, at least, with him of like, well, well even that he's thinking like, how unspeakably evil is the thing you want to do? That like, even this would be better, is how he's reasoning. Um, he shouldn't have offered his daughters, but... Um, it seems like in the narrative, it's just assumed that this is just like an unbelievably egregious thing to do. Um, now, the next day, the Lord rescues Lot's family. Of course, his wife uh, turns back and doesn't make it. But the Lord rains sulfur and fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah and overthrows the city, the cities of the plain, it says in 1925 uh, and 29. Um, now, Scripture Elsewhere, comments on this event and on these places, Sodom and Gomorrah, it comes up a lot in the prophets as sort of a dig against Israel because they'll call Israel Sodom a lot, like daughter of Sodom, which is, so they're sort of this quintessential example of really, really evil. So then it's a, it's literarily, it's like this convenient thing to pull out and be like, oh yeah, you're being like Sodom. Judges does this narratively with a story toward the end of, I think in 19 to 21 of Judges that seems a lot like Sodom in Israel. And it's like, wow, Israel's being like Sodom. Um, but anyway, it functions that way. Jude, uh, verse 7, Jude has one chapter. So Jude, verse 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Um, so think about it. The, 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 the narrative of Genesis says, okay, this place is really, really evil. And then you go and, you, and the narrative brings you into the city to see one event. And there's this one really unspeakable thing that they want to do in that city. And they're destroyed. So we should be quick to say, I mean, there's other texts like, for instance, Ezekiel, if you want to look on your own, Ezekiel 16, 49 to 50 talks about Sodom. What was their sin? Well, they were proud. Uh, they, they talk about pride and how they had excess of food. They basically had this, like, this luxury and decadence. Um, and then they pursued an abomination. So some have pointed and said, oh, see, it's not about sexual sin at all. It's about their pride. It's about, you know, like pointing to those things as though that's all that Sodom was doing wrong, was like pride and excess. What I I think it's better to see it as um, the Bible points to this place as a a place that's so bad, and they have these underlying sins of pride, maybe pride and and, and decadence and greed, which kind of gives way to more and more extreme expressions of... of, um, self-indulgent decadence and it even reaches the point of this horrible unspeakable sin of sodomy that's kind of the the overall picture you get in scripture in the narrative and in what other texts of scripture say about it this pursuing unnatural desire clearly is referring to that so um that's what's going on in sodom 
Uh, Leviticus, a couple of times, deals with this sin in chapter 18 and chapter 20. So we have 18, 22, and 20, verse 13. Chapters 18 to 20 of Leviticus are called the Holiness Code, and there's, they're a bit, uh, there's a bit of like symmetry where a lot of stuff that comes up in chapter 18 comes up again in chapter 20. Chapter 19 in between has a lot of things about love. That's where the love command, you should love your neighbor as yourself, comes. There's more positive commandments. 18 and 20 are a lot of negative, don't do this, and a lot of sexual sin. Now, Leviticus, what's, what is Leviticus known for having a lot of discussion of? What does Leviticus like to talk about? The law, which is it more like uh, laws of a moral nature or a different kind? More ceremonial. There's a lot about sacrifices. There's a lot about who can, what, what priests, what qualifies a priest based on all these ceremonial cleanliness things. What happens if you have a mold growing in your house? You know, that, that kind of stuff. It's more cleanliness stuff. But the, this is called the holiness code because it's, it's the most morally kind of concentrated part of Leviticus. And it's talking mostly about sexual sin. So, verse 18, chapter 18, verse 22, you should not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Chapter 20, verse 13, if a man lies with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Uh, if you look at the surrounding context, there's all these different forms of sexual deviancy that that comes in the context of. Um, now, can anyone think of an objection to, and you may have had these conversations, you may wonder this in yourself, you may have seen the, the, that, this classic scene in the show, The West Wing, and if you later want to look it up, uh, look up The West Wing, Leviticus, homosexual, there's this scene where someone confronts somebody over this issue, but the idea of someone saying, yeah, but the Old Testament law doesn't apply now. Look at all these ridiculous commandments, like mixed fabrics and, and mixing crops in the same field, and like, of course we don't keep this stuff now today. This stuff is ridiculous. How could you, you say this is, on, this is still relevant? And you're being inconsistent if you would cite a Levitical commandment against this if you also are wearing a mixed fabric or whatever. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, Tom. Yeah, one objection that they bring up about this, this section is saying, well, the Jews needed to procreate to build their, their population up, so that's yeah. why God forbid them to have same-sex yeah. same sex okay. because that would defeat the purpose of building up the, the population. But now that the population is built up, Okay. Okay, so that there was just a more temporary need to procreate and multiply. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's one. That's one objection people might have. That's kind of a, a similar sort of sub varieties of the that was then, this is now, and we don't, we don't, and it's true. There's a nugget of truth in it, right? That we don't just look at every single ordinance in the Old Testament and say, well, this applies now to me today, right? The New Testament does some a little bit more complex things with the law, which, of course, is far beyond the scope of this lesson um, to, to be thorough about it. But um, one thing we needed just from the start is very clear. The Mosaic Law contains universal moral teaching that often takes the form that is limited by time and covenant and circumstance. So, um, like I said, chapter 19 of Leviticus, in between 18 and 20, that's where... Jesus' second great commandment comes from. In verse 18, uh, Leviticus 19, 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does anyone want to argue that's not universal? When someone said, what are the great commandments? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like That's big, big, broad strokes. That's what God's moral will is about. So it's tricky, right? But then there are also things about ceremonial, sacrifice, priesthood that are fulfilled in Christ and don't continue on past that, co that specific covenantal situation. Um, 
So what I would say is what's happening in the law is that there's God's permanent moral law that's established. I, th- I believe the Ten Commandments is giving that. And then it's often taking very specific covenantally um, determined forms. And the New Testament kind of guides us into what do those universals look like in another covenantal context or a more universal context that's not Israel on the plains of Moab or at the, at the foot of Sinai. But one thing that we can look at the context of, of um, Leviticus 18 and see that God is, God is clearly talking about universal sexual uh, ethics. And one way we can see that is if you look at uh, just two verses later. So the prohibition was Leviticus 18.22. If you look at Leviticus 18 verses 24 to 25, would someone would be willing to read that? Look how God reasons about this. If you're saying, oh, this is just a ceremonial cleanliness issue or he just wanted, temporarily wanted Israel to have more kids. What does he say in verses 24 to 25? Uh, Tom, thanks. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. So God is saying, watch out for these practices. It's for doing these things that the Canaanites, the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, because it's written on their hearts. The Gentiles in Canaan are going to be judged for doing these things. Is this Israel's private covenantal instruction? No, he's holding the world accountable for these practices. And, and again, there are things that ought not to be done. Abimelech can tell the Canaanites. There are things that ought not to be done. And the Canaanites are doing these things. And so God is saying, I will hold them to account for that. I'm warning you, don't be like them because they're about to be judged, right? As the Israel will be, will be his hand of judgment against the Canaanites. The land will vomit out its inhabitants. So this is clearly, um, again, this is another test. This is another witness to moral law or the natural law that there are certain things that everyone is being held accountable for that they didn't need the law of Moses to know that they shouldn't have done, and that that these sexual ethics are a part of that. Is sexual immorality? It's interesting that often the Bible will talk about sexual immorality. In a, as like a lumped term, and like New Testament, you know, vice lists will say, oh, we all know this is wrong. But you kind of say, well, what fits in that? What's, this is another one where both like the Old Testament law and I think natural law can kind of teach. There, there, we, there's a lot of things that we can just say. Nature itself teaches this is not the straight and narrow, so to speak. This is not what God intended for sexuality. Um, and so this is one of those things. This is not, this is not uh, just a ceremonial um, holiness thing. Uh, any pushback or questions about any of that? Yeah, Matt. I just find it interesting that there is debate over what scripture teaches regarding these mm-hmm. things because it seems that look, I, I like football, right? Mm-hmm. But I also like soccer and I really get engaged in the rules of soccer. I don't care what the rules of football have to do with soccer. Mm-hmm. The, the analogy there is why do they care so much about yeah. what the scripture teaches regarding these things if they don't even play the game? Right, right. right. Well, so, yeah. And well, why do you care what the Bible says, essentially? Yeah. There's no, and if, if they do care, then there should be some intellectual honesty and say, this yeah. is clearly what Scripture teaches, but I reject it. Yeah, so there's all kinds of things. There's, you've got the person who doesn't claim any Christian. The, yeah, it's a good point. It's like, why do you care what the Bible says, right? Um, you've got the people that are using it as a defeater, who maybe they don't believe or claim to believe, but they want to show how inconsistent we are and how we need to evolve and be progressive Christians who evolve on this like the other progressive Christians, because look, 
it's an option within your, your Christianity to, to, to evolve on this. Let me show you how ridiculous it is for you to use the Old Testament this way. Others are using it as professing Christians trying to justify a, a new conclusion. And I said at the beginning, the Bible's teaching on this is simple. It is, but you would not think that by the volume of ink that's spilled over these issues because there's been a lot of reevaluation in recent decades. And this is one of those areas where I would say the presence of debate does not imply the, the absence of clarity. <laughs> um, that there's been a lot of reevaluation, but a lot of it, in my judgment, is historically, it's a very, there's a very smoking gun of the culture pre- is pressing hard, culture's prevailing views are changing, and suddenly, suddenly, these things that were never questioned in the history of Christianity or Judaism are suddenly very hotly contested. We've been reading it wrong. That should, that should always, in any issue, make us like, wow, it's just really convenient timing that that synced up with, with these changes of cultural uh, sensibilities that suddenly uh, suddenly we realized we weren't reading the Bible correctly. Um, that's always a, a dicey thing. Anyway, I could go on about that. But, yeah, sometimes it's professing Christians, just wanting to justify a different, a different conclusion. Yeah. But, yeah, it's not intellectually honest. And I appreciate scholars who aren't Christian who say, no, this is, you can't get around. This is what the text is teaching. And there are some, some who have said that. Um, Let's go on to the New Testament. Um, uh, Romans, there's three places it's mentioned. Um, Romans 1, 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 we'll look at. 1 Timothy 1, 10 also mentions it. It's pretty similar. Most of what we say about 1 Corinthians 6, 9 would also apply to 1 Timothy 1, 10. Paul uses the same term there in a kind of a similar context. But um, you may be familiar with the context in Romans 1. Paul is, is describing how man turned away from his creator into sin to worship the creature rather than the creator, refusing to worship God as God. And um, in response to that, that fundamental exchange of trading God in for worshiping idols, creatures, God, God gave us what we wanted. He turned us over to more and more uh, heinous uh, exchanges. It's that idea of exchange. Like we made an exchange, and so God is, gonna, God is making exchanges too. He's like giving us over to more and more. It's like giving us what we want um, in a really bad way, uh, more, to more and more extreme degrees. So it's in that context that he says in verses 24 to 27, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their, heart, of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise give up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. Um, so notice this is the only place where the, the, um, the female side, le- lesbian practice, is, is mentioned in Scripture. But both in males and females, uh, homosexual practice is an exchange of natural relations Again, there, we all know what nature says about, about the ways we're supposed to be oriented and um, what we were created for. And homosexuality exchanges nature and pursues unnatural desire. Um, and it's, it's uh, then in verse 28, he goes on and says, and God gave them over some more. And then it leads to the, uh, just a long catalog of other sins that it led to, that it leads to. Essentially, this picture of like, because we traded God in for idols, God tr- traded us in for all these really vile desires and turned us over to that and it just leads to this less like worse and worse cascade of sin 
That's kind of how it, how it ends there in verse 32. Um, so that's, that's Romans 1. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Would someone be willing to read uh, verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 6? He's again in the context he's giving a vice list. He's describing different kinds of sin. And who will not receive the kingdom of heaven? Basically, people who don't repent of these practices will, don't belong in, in, in the kingdom. So, um, Terry. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Yeah, 9 to 10. Thank you. Now, this phrase that uh, we have in our English Bible, men who practice homosexuality, uh, it translates to actually two Greek terms. So he's listing people, kinds of people, and in the Greek, he, this is two items in the list. Um, one of them indicates an active partner, and it's a compound word that would kind of come from the word man better, man better, and, you know, betting is sort of, sort of a metaphorical extension. We can understand what that means. And the other one, it literally means soft or effeminate. So it's, it's sort of the, the, a more active and a more passive partner, as Laurie talked about, that often it will take this form. Um, and this word, this compound word that he uses, arsenokoites. Again, man, better is kind of what the two parts mean. It doesn't appear anywhere else that we know about. Then Paul uses it here in 1 Timothy 1.10. Um, it's, it's a compound. Those two words that it joins together appear together in the Greek Old Testament translation of Leviticus 18.22. When it says, don't lie with a man as with a woman, it uses those two Greek words. So probably, scholars think probably, either Paul or some other Greek-speaking Jew coined this word out of the Levitical prohibition. So using the language of Scripture in the Greek translation, which was what they used, they coined this term for a kind of sinner a kind of practice, a kind of person who does this kind of practice, and, he's, and he, he coins this new Greek term and he uses it. Um, so, so there's probably echoes of the Levitical prohibition here, here, here even in Paul's description of this kind of person. Now, uh, so again, pretty clear. Again, 1 Timothy 1.10 does a similar thing. as listing different kinds of people, different kinds of sins, and it lists this, arsenokoites. Um as I said, texts are clear, but in our, in our cultural moment we're in, a debate has raged, including uh, over the scripture texts. And uh, it's sad. I mean, people, sh- uh, biblical scholars and churches and believers should be, should be faithfully uh, portraying what the Bible says against contrary cultural pressures. Instead, in many cases, there's a, there's a caving, there's an accommodation, trying to find ways to argue a way around what, what I believe are just the clear teaching of these texts. Um, and I would say in these matters, the, the main strategy is to say that somehow what Paul's referring to is different than, than what we see today in homosexuality. And there's sort of two main forms of that. One is to look at the way it was often practiced in Greco-Roman culture in the first century and say it was usually some form of, a, of an exploitive power relationship, like a master-slave or kind of a pederasty, if you understand what that means. There was some kind of radical... Uh, it wasn't this mutual kind of romantic ideal that we that we know of today that's more akin to like a marriage and more like a, a, a mutual loving relationship. It was something more exploitive. It was something more kind of carnal and gross. And that's what Paul is talking about. Um, any, res- any thoughts about response to that? 
Yeah, sure. Just want to point out that there are some um, real loose, watered-down versions of Bibles, mm -hmm. um, like the Passion, that completely leaves out the word homosexuality. Oh, really? And so I've had um, oh, wow. a homosexual uh, bring their version of that and yeah. say, look. And what it does in there, sadly, is it points out something of uh, don't do things that are to other people. Yeah, yeah. This individual said what he does is not offensive. Okay, so, so they, they, they kind of blurt it out into something basically beyond recognition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, I don't think that's common, but there are out there probably translations that make this really obscure. Yeah, yeah, that would be really heinous because it's very clear what it's saying. Um, regarding, oh, that's not how, how we do it today. That's not how it's done today. Well, a couple thoughts from me and from the author of our book. It's not original to me. <laughs> uh, oh, Matt Boyd, do you have something? Oh, yeah. yeah so it's not, maybe that's, that. We, yeah, we, we sh you can't argue that that's not happening still, um, even though that may not be what people... Yeah, yeah. Don't be too quick to d dismiss the possibility of exploitation even today. That's a really good point. Um, even if we were to assume the, the best, so to speak, and say, okay, let's say you have two, you know, it's a totally mutual, totally consensual, loving relationship. Well, again, a couple thoughts. One is Paul's foundation is Leviticus. Paul's a Jew. He's thinking Leviticus. He's probably using a word that derives from the verse in Leviticus. And what the Levitical Prohibition say sleeping with a man is with a woman. That's very broad. That's not an exploitive or whatever age difference. It's none of that. It's just, it's just the practice of what it is. Um, so that's in the background. It seems very unlikely that Paul would be meaning to give room for, for something. Uh, that he would be meaning to prohibit something much narrower than that. And leaving room for something beyond that. When again, it seems like the assumption would be what's in the background is Leviticus. The other thing is... There's mutuality in the language like of Romans 127. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. That's very mutual. So, it, so the language doesn't allow for just pigeonholing it to just some kind of very narrow situation like that. Um, the second form of objection is kind of similar, and that is the idea, okay, he's talking about just a carnal kind of passion-driven form of homosexual practice, but now we understand homosexuality to be an orientation. We understand sexual orientation. They didn't know about that back then. And so we understand. So when he says they gave up natural relations, they say, well, yeah, but this is natural to me, or this is natural to this person, so it's not giving up natural relations. It's just owning what they are. So there's this construct of a, an orientation that sort of challenges the, the application of these prohibitions to some uh, manifestations uh, of homosexuality. What do we say to that? Well, um, first I would say we need to be very clear. The Bible does not warrant that division or that, that distinction between orientation and practice. That's not a biblical um, way of thinking. Um, in biblical terms, sexual orientation is nothing more than the content of one's heart desires. That's it. It's what your heart wants. That's, that's the biblical category for what we're describing here. And the thoughts and the desires of our heart are morally relevant. They're not morally neutral. They're, they're either, they can be good, they can be evil. If your heart wants evil things, that's because you're evil. 
It's not. Uh, so, so the reason I say that is um, it's, it, what orientation does is it, or identity does is it creates this protected, this kind of morally neutral protected category. It creates a fortress in which you can kind of hide and say like, oh, these, these ethical evaluations don't, don't apply to me because I'm in this identity fortress. And what we'd say is biblically, no, that, that's no protection against moral critique of your heart's desires and thoughts. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Yeah, Seth. Mm-hmm. The question you most ask them is, are people born adulterers? Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, I was born, I was attracted to beautiful women. I'm yeah. Right now, but I'm still attracted to beautiful women. So does that make it okay to leave cheating? Right, so right. The, the point being that regardless of whether the desire is natural or something that you've always had, it doesn't make it right to act upon it. Right. So natural, yeah. In one sense, biblically, we, we should say, well, yes, it is natural in that we, we received a fallen nature in Adam. It's not natural in the sense of our cre- what we were created for. It's not natural from Genesis 1 and 2. It is natural in the sense of our fall, the corruption of our nature in Genesis 3. So even that, we have to be able to say, well, yeah, it, it, sin, certain kinds of sin are natural to all of us. That doesn't make them right. The desires of our hearts tend toward evil in all kinds of ways. That doesn't make it okay. Yeah, Matt. Yep. Right. Right. Exactly. So we, on the one hand, it makes the moral situation clear, but it also indicts us because we go, there are certain sins that that feel impossible for me not to do, especially outside of Christ, that were impossible for me not to do, and yeah, that's how sin works. That's the fallenness of of of, of man outside of grace. So yeah, it is very humbling, and it it it, it teaches us not to. Um, stand in judgment, right? Even though we have to be clear on, on the, the moral situation of, of this practice. Um, yeah, just so basically the idea of creating identity out of sin doesn't, it doesn't excuse the sin. It actually doubles down on the shamefulness and sinfulness of sin to say, not only do I do this, but I'm going to wear it on my sleeve. This is what I am. This is who I am. I'm going to be proud of it. I'm going to own it. I think of the words of Philippians 3.19. They glory in their shame. Their God is their belly, meaning they live for their satisfying their uh, their desires, uh, their, their, um, in, indulging their desires. That's a pretty good picture. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. So this idea of this is what I am, it's not something I'm ashamed of. It's something I'm, I'm let's have a whole week, a whole month about pride <laughs> over this identity. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. But again, it's not that this sin is worse in that, or, or any different in how, the way it works in that regard. But we just need to be clear. Identity is no, is no, uh, is no like safeguard against the moral the Bible's moral evaluation here. So the Bible's we've seen clearly homosexual practice violate, violates God's will for man and woman. Um, I want to talk with the time we have remaining about practical considerations. And this um, again, the the biblical issues are fairly simple. The life issues are can be very complex, and that's the way it works with anything, right? When it gets to real life out in the world with our hearts, our hearts are are complex. Our relationships are complex. Um, and this is a personal issue that touches the deep places of the heart, um, as we've already kind of been alluding to with sin and righteousness. These are things that, that touch the deepest kind of desires and, and workings of our souls. And it would be foolish to, um, to think that this only affects those, those opponents out there in the world. You know, like, it's good to think about how we would, like, argue about this, but realize this is more than just something we argue with outsiders about. 
this is something that some of us maybe wrestle with in our own souls in our own lives or some others in the body or someone you know very closely that this is an issue so we want to spend a few minutes of course we have to be so brief on this and I, I just want to say if this is something that you're working your way through in your own life or someone that you love who's near you just want to open and encourage just open invitation talk to me or Greg or Gary one of the elder pastor elders we'd love to this is stuff that needs a lot of interaction and a lot of prayer and stuff so we would really invite you to to seek uh, prayer and counsel on these things. We'd love to help. Um, but first we want to look at dealing with it personally. Like what if you experience same-sex desire? And again, not comprehensive, but a few points of kind of biblical counsel. One of them is know how to classify it. And we already touched on this. This is uh, contrary to what the world is telling you. This is not an identity. This is a temptation to sin. That's what it is. It's a temptation to sin. Temptation, is it a sin to be tempted? No. Was Jesus tempted? Yes. It's not, a, it's not a temptation. It's not a sin to be tempted. But one thing temptation can do is give birth to evil desires. So it's one thing for a sin to occur to us and maybe seek to draw us. The next step is when our hearts start going, hmm, that'd be pretty nice. And you start maybe thinking about uh, indulging in a certain sin. As soon as our heart starts desiring evil, that's evil. And so evil desire or kind of thinking about things we might do with a sort of longing way, that's where we start to be actually sinning. And then, of course, that evil desire often leads to evil actions, which only further deepens the sin. Um, James 1, 13 to 15 talks about this. We're led astray. We're enticed away by evil desire, and then it gives birth to sin. It's a sort of process, this, this sort of um, reinforcing process. Yeah? Flee from temptation. Yeah, that's a great question. What does it mean? I, I think um, that, that appears, I think, in First Timothy. I don't remember exactly. I think it's count, Paul's Council of Timothy, maybe chapter 4. Um, I think what it means is um, when you notice that you're being tempted, do everything you can to go in the opposite direction toward holiness. Um, so I, I think that if you see a temptation occurring to you or drawing you and you sort of sidle up close and sort of let it, let it start drawing you in, that's where you're starting to sin. Whereas if you see it there and you go, oh, this is starting to, to, to tug at me, I'm going to turn around and flee and move toward holiness and try to, try to set my mind on the things of, of, of the Spirit and on Christ. That's, I believe, what it means to flee from temptation. And that can take all kinds of, like, forms in our life. I mean, it's a heart thing, but there can be all sorts of ways we pursue that. It might mean, oh, there's a friend that I need to call and, and, and ask for prayer. It might mean there's certain... I need to go, you know, read a psalm that, that really helps me in this situation. Or uh, I, certainly prayer would be a part of it. So there's all kinds of ways that might, we might pursue that. But that's fundamentally what it means is trying to turn your heart back toward the Lord when you see an opening toward temptation. Does that, does that help? That's the question. It's a great question. Um, so know, know how to classify it. It's temptation to sin. And then second, lay hold of the forgiving and transforming power of the gospel. So we read 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. These people don't inherit the kingdom these kinds of patterns of sin, and we saw homosexuality included there. But I would be remiss to not also point your attention to verse 11. This is a beautiful verse. It says, And such were, Corinthian Christians, such were some of you. Again, drunkards, revilers, homosexuals, etc. But you are washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in Christ, sinful desires don't, they're not our identity. It's not who you are. Who you are is 
you belong to Jesus. You've been redeemed. You've been washed. You've been forgiven. You've been endowed with the life-giving Holy Spirit who is sanctifying you and preparing you for glory. Even if you have sinned grievously in your past in this area, even if after becoming a Christian you've stumbled in ways that you're deeply ashamed of, that you know are, are very wrong, it's not who you are. Who you are is, I'm in Christ, I'm redeemed. So we need to be very, I, I think there's a movement afoot among Christians to, 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 to take this identity of a gay Christian. You may have heard this. People saying, this is my identity, but I'm going to live celibately. That's demonic. I will say straight up, that is demonic. The idea, this is still my identity, but I'll just try to be biblically faithful. But that's a really, really flimsy halfway position. That I know people that, there are people that mean well that are trying to be faithful and aren't falling into sexual sin who are doing that. I'm not saying everyone who claims that is, is wantonly saying, but I'm saying that kind of construct is unbiblical and will not protect people for very long. If you tell people, this is really what you are, but you just got to hold tight and not act on it. It's, it's contrary to Ephesians, or 1 Corinthians 6.11, and it's really pastorally unhelpful. Who you are is you're redeemed in Christ. You're a new creature. All of us were some kind of sinner, and we're not that anymore. Such were some of you. Third, strive for holiness. Uh, you have places like 1 Thessalonians 4, where he says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Um, your goal is not to become a heterosexual sinner. There's, there's some kind of worldly wisdom out there that says, oh, we can, you, we can straighten you out by getting you to lust after the opposite sex. That's, that's not any better. <laughs> it's not more godly to be a heterosexual sinner. You were saved to be conformed to the image of God's son, says Romans 8.29, if you're in Christ. Maybe someday God will provide you with a spouse, and maybe he won't. That's not really your primary business. Your job is not to turn yourself into a heterosexual your job is to be holy, to walk by the Spirit and pursue sexual purity of every kind. And that's what you've been given the Holy Spirit to empower you to do. So just know that's the goal of sanctification is holiness. That's what sanctification means. It's holiness. That's what the Lord is doing in you. And fourth, share your burden with trusted brethren. You have uh, Jesus in the upper room washing his disciples' feet and saying, do this for each other. And as Greg has been uh, very clear and has preached on this a few times, it's very helpful that this means servanthood to help cleanse. Uh, of course, not, we're not the agent that ultimately cleanses. It's the work of Christ. But applying the work of Christ to each other, helping to cleanse because our feet get dirty with sin. Um, Galatians 6, 1 to 2, that we, we who are spiritual help others, help bear their burden um, in the church if they're, if they're seeming to be um, under a load of sin. So Jesus designed his body so that we carry each other's load of sanctification together. Each one is responsible to carry their own load, but we don't carry it alone. We carry it together. And so you need trusted friends who will pray for you, counsel you, maybe hear confessions of sin, maybe about what's going on in your heart. By the way, it's not only people who struggle with same-sex attraction that need these things, right? Like, we all need this stuff. Whatever our besetting sins and temptation, we need each other carrying each other's load. But this is definitely an issue. Um, where, if the, especially if this is something you really mightily struggle with, you really need to, to bring in some trusted brothers and sisters to give counsel and to, uh, to help you walk with the Lord. So those are some, again, there's much more that can be said, but those are some points of maybe wisdom and counsel biblically for if this is something you deal with. Any questions or, or, or follow up on that? Yeah, Zach. Just real quick, I think something that's super important in all of this is just making sure that we do have a biblical understanding
understanding of what masculinity and femininity mm -hmm. are. Because I think that can be something that muddies the water so much, mm -hmm. particularly for people who are struggling with this sort of thing. Right. If the people around you, if your family, if the world at large is telling you this is what it means to be a man or this is yeah. what it means to be a woman, and you don't see yourself exactly lining up to that, yeah, yeah. that can just feed confusion and doubt and all sorts of things. And so I think for all of us, holding up a proper understanding of what it means to be a man biblically, what it means to be a woman, yeah. Yeah. Right. So we have distorted pictures of masculinity and femininity. Femininity. So you're going like, oh, I don't, I don't want a big truck, and I don't like football. Maybe I'm not very manly. And then the world is on your other ear telling you like, maybe you're oriented another way. Consider whether you. I even looked up like, how do I know if I'm gay? And there's this, these publications for teens, and it's like so glossy and so simple, and it's just, it's so it's so sad that they're just fishing, right? They're like, you you know, and the, the criteria they give, it's it's yeah. Anyway, yeah. That's a really good point of having more and more biblical vision for manhood and womanhood that will help cut through some of that. Very important. Very good. And that's where we get into the church, which is the next, we'll very briefly touch on. Dealing with this as a church, that's one, that's a good subpoint. It's just modeling biblical masculinity and femininity for one another in ways, there's a diversity within each of those. And you can see, oh, there's not this one really narrow, kind of culturally defined uh, uh, what it means to be a man. Uh, there, there's definitely some, some diversity and, and maybe to help us be more comfortable with just how we're different um, as a man or a woman. Um, so that's helpful. But also just it kind of dovetailing on the last, the last point of be the kind of brother or sister in Christ. Let's be the kind of church. And I think we largely are. I'm encouraged actually in this area. But where you're prepared. If someone were to come up to you and tell you they struggle with same-sex desire that you're like, on the one hand, you're not like, yay, you know. You're grieving with them, like, oh, that's, that's really painful to hear. But I'm really glad you told me. I'm really glad we can walk uh, in, in the light with, with Christ together. We're going to encourage. We're going to like, be prepared to not be, like, shocked by this. Like, how could, you know, like, how could you, how could you even think of something like that? But just know this is, uh, this, this is one of many sins that, that we maybe bring, bring into our Christian life from the past or just various ways that, um, that sin appeals to our hearts. But... We, the spirit who's in us is, is more powerful, and, and Christ's mercy in, in the cross is more powerful. So let's just keep on doing what we are and, and being a church that's ready to help each other with this. Um, finally, in the world, dealing, and again, like, oh, this could be multiple lessons on how to deal with it in the world. Coworkers, family members, what do you do outside the body of Christ? I would just say a, a, a sketch with a, f a few virtues, how this might look, our posture. It can't, we can't be formulaic because there's so many situations that come up, right? So many questions. Maybe this could be something we deal with in our conclusion lesson in a couple weeks. Uh, maybe if I've, long ago, I, I solicited questions and I haven't gotten any. <laughs> but maybe you have some more specific thorny questions about this issue. You can email me and we can deal with this in the conclusion lesson. But I would just say, first of all, love. Love means we desire the true good of our neighbors. It does not mean unconditional affirmation. That's what our world defines love as. That's not biblically what love means. Um, it also doesn't delight in controversy and in weaponizing the truth. Love does not love arguing and proving other people wrong. Um, and love, love hates everything that hurts the beloved, including their, their dear, precious, dearly desired sin. So love will say, I really hate that thing that's, that's hurting you, your sin, even if you love it. That's even, that makes me even sadder that, that what you love is so destructive. 
Uh, so loving, being, being a Christ-like loving presence in the world. Courage. Courage means we do the hard thing. There's something good that we're supposed to do and we're willing to press forward and do it. That's what courage is. And it means that we are willing to tell uncomfortable truths and we will refuse to ever lie. Even when it's very, very inconvenient not to lie. Even when it will cost us things relationally or financially or any, any number of ways. And it means that we'll refuse to affirm evil by our actions, whether explicitly or implicitly. All kinds of particulars there, but just courage says, I will not do anything that will cause anyone to be confused about right and wrong, that will affirm evil or, or verbally, um, verbally endorse or repeat lies. Wisdom means we walk in the fear of the Lord, mindful of the consequences of our actions, and thoughtful about uh, how the world really works. Um, and then all these little decisions that come up. What do I say? When do I speak? When do I keep silent? When I do speak, what do I say? Do I try to reason in love with somebody? Do I hold back and say, I don't want to throw my pearls before swine. This is not going to be received well, etc." There's, again, infinite number of, of questions and situations that come up. But as, we're, as our hearts are being schooled and instructed by God's word, especially the wisdom literature, especially looking at Jesus, who, in whom is the treasure of all God's wisdom, as Colossians tells us, looking at how Jesus dealt with sinners and, and, and different kinds of people, just having instincts formed uh, to, to be led by God's spirit in the way of wisdom. And that's going to, of course, these, again, these issues, there's, all, there's always wisdom needed all over the place. How do we love according to the truth? How do we have courage? How do we be patient and kind in this particular relationship, in this particular situation? We need God's wisdom. So... Um, that's very broad. Not, not very satisfying with all the stuff that comes up, but hopefully it's helpful. Um, so anyway, in conclusion, we have we looked at what the Bible says about this, about this sin of homosexuality. Uh, very clear that it's against God's will. Um, in, in the kind of particulars of life, we, we, we've looked at what do you do if this affects you? What, what do we do with this in the body of Christ? What do we do in the world? Um, I just love how the Bible is very clear about sin, but it always follows with the but God. There's always a but God when the Bible is dealing with sin, and that's exactly what 1 Corinthians 6.11 does in giving us the hope of the gospel, um, that anyone in Christ is a new creation because of what God has done in Christ. He's forgiven you, um, and he's working in you. If you're discouraged about this, just know uh, he's working in you and preparing you for glory, and he won't let you go. So, uh, again, Glad to interact with you further later on, but let's go ahead and close in prayer for the sake of time. God, thank you for your teaching to us on these things. We thank you for the freedom of your grace in the gospel of Christ and pray that every soul in this room would be deeply convicted of that, uh, those riches that are available for us in Christ, and uh, that you would cause us to walk in purity and light, um, not out of a sense of guilt, but ultimately out of a sense of knowing your goodness and love. Make us lights in the world and make us a, a community of people who help each other joyfully walk in the way of holiness. We pray all this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.